the best writers, the best writers know how to weave a story, right? Whether you're reading a great book or watching a great movie, there's something going on in a particular scene, and then it jumps somewhere else and tells a little bit more of the story, and then it jumps back and it weaves the story that way. It's just really interesting for the reader. John 18 does precisely that. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John chapter 18? Because last week we looked at the fact Jesus was in the garden of, the, of Gethsemane and he is arrested there. Then it jumps to uh, an, an interview, we'll call it a pre-trial because it wasn't a real trial, um, uh, where they start to talk to Jesus. And then it jumps to Peter's first denial of Jesus. Then it jumps back to this trial that has begun. And then two more denials from Peter. And then it moves on. And so if we were watching that as a movie, that would just be great storytelling. John, the gospel writer, weaves this beautifully, just really compels us and just takes us on that story. Preaching uh, the jump, this, this, there, and everywhere uh, is a different story. <laughs> And so I'd uh, love to watch it that way on film, challenging to preach. So I made the decision, well, months ago now, as I was kind of mapping all of this out, is that we would follow this kind of pre-trial uh, th through. So we're going to look at a couple verses, then jump to the rest of that trial. Next week, we will take uh, Peter's uh, first denial of Jesus and pair it with the, the next two denials of Peter. And so... Um, John, the gospel writer, has a reason for orchestrating it this way, beautiful to read, um, rather than just do portions of each and then do portions of the other two next week. We're going to look at the trial this week, look at the denials next week, okay? Hope that makes sense. If you have a Bible, turn to John 18, it'll be on the screen as well. We'll read verses 13 and 14, then we'll jump to 19. Here's the word of God, and here's what it says. First they led him, that's Jesus, to Annas. This is after he has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the road to the cross for Jesus. They led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas and has a road na named after him in Chilliwack, which is also pretty cool, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Jump to 19 with me. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Are, are those who have heard, um, ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. A couple things will be helpful uh, in terms of the context here uh, I want to let you know about. One is the high priest, the role and the people involved in that role at this time. And then uh, I want to talk a little bit about proper uh, trial proceedings that should have taken place at that time, and, and we'll, that, that, that'll help us uh, understand a little bit more of what's going on. First of all, there's a little bit of confusion here. Who's the high priest? Is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? Because there, he's brought to Annas, and then it says that the high priest, verse 19, is questioning him, and then at, at verse 24 it says, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, what? So we need to understand that a little bit. Uh, so Annas was the high priest from the year 6 to 15 AD, 
We see that recorded in history. But then he was um, ousted by the Roman governor at that time. And uh, what proceeded to happen is a number of Annas's sons became the high priest and eventually his son-in-law. In fact, Annas had five sons uh, fill the role of high priest and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, at this present time that we're reading this text, is the high, sitting high priest then. And so um, because there was Roman occupation in Israel, they would take what should have been a high priestly role for life till the death of the, the man sitting as the high priest. The Romans would come in and they just oust guys at will and throw somebody else in. For whatever reason, Annas' family seemed to be like the mafia of high priests and they just kept getting in, but it was just his sons and his son-in-law. And so they carry on in this way. Because in, in Mosaic law, in the Old Testament, we would see that high, this high priest role was for life. It's likely that a lot of the Jews still saw Annas that way as the true high priest who never should have been ousted. And so uh, it's likely there, that's one of the reasons why he's called the high priest. Many would still see him that way. Another could be also like we call the president of the United States or the former presidents of the United States. They're still referred to in title, Mr. President's but they don't hold the office anymore. And so Annas, having been high priest, still kind of carried the title of that significance. And so that's going on. It's Annas, not Caiaphas, who's having this dialogue with Jesus. Secondly, this is a bit of a, uh, an artificial trial, and it's in fact the pre-trial. Some of the other gospels talk about the, the, the t- in front of the Sanhedrin with Jesus, the kind of official trial that Caiaphas was leading, but this is a pre-trial. But what should have happened in this context didn't happen. For one, we see in the verses we skipped, Peter warming himself by a fire because it's cold, because it's nighttime. This trial never should have been happening. This conversation never should have taken place as it did. It wasn't right. Not only that, the defendant, the, the prisoner, was never to be called on in a trial in this context. And so we see this from Josephus' writings and others, historical writings of this time. The person on trial was never required to testify or answer questions. Instead, witnesses were called to speak. First, witnesses on behalf of the accused. So what should have happened is a bunch of witnesses should have been gathered to speak for Jesus, to help the cause of Jesus. And so we can kind of see that Jesus, why Jesus is saying what he's saying. Why are you asking me? Why don't, I've spoken publicly. Ask those who have heard me. Many have. Jesus isn't trying to be cheeky. He's, he's inviting them to follow uh, like the proper judicial proceedings, but they will not. Jesus points these things out not because he's hoping that they'll follow proper court proceedings and release him and free him. Jesus has already determined to go to the cross. But what he's doing here is he's revealing their calloused hearts. He's revealing the unjust ways in in which they are acting and what what they're doing. I, I want to set the context in terms of the motivation for why they would have grabbed Jesus, arrested Jesus, what their motivations were. And so there's really a kind of a parallel text for us this morning. And you can flip back to John chapter 11. We're going to look at a few verses there that help inform us. What's happening in, in John chapter 11 is Lazarus has been raised to life which is a precursor to Jesus going to the cross, proving that he already has victory over death. He already has power over death. So the road to the cross, right, it's already paved. But after Lazarus was raised, we pick it up in verse 45, 
where it says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that's heal Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Listen to this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is the motivation for the arrest of Jesus. They determined at this point, back in John chapter 11, we need to put an end to this. It's really fascinating. They actually say that Jesus is performing many miraculous signs. They're using a particular word there that's actually saying um, this is supernatural what he's doing. And that they're not even denying it. They're just saying we need to put a stop to it because people might believe in him or everybody's going to. And the people saying this are the religious elites. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the, the kind of supreme court of Israel. And, and all of these religious elites with all their priestly robes and biblical knowledge, with their years, with their decades of religious training and service, were supposedly the most spiritual men in the nation. And yet, they were lost. Perceivably, these were the most spiritual people in the nation. And yet we clearly see that they are lost people. They had lots of the Bible memorized, but ironically were ignorant to the truth. They had Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, performing miracles and teaching in their presence. They totally missed it. I don't know if they couldn't put the pieces together or they were so focused on their ends, their roles, their place, that they didn't even want to look close. They were too caught up in themselves. Here's a truth for us. It's not a pleasant one, but you can be religious and still be lost. Empty religion has you doing all the right things. This is where it gets a little dicey. It has you doing all the right things, going to church, putting money in the offering, doing the right things. You can be moral, but if it's void of true, authentic relationship with Jesus. It's cold, dead religion. The focus of a religious person is on the self, not on the Christ. I'll show you a couple ways that the religious, and I'm using that in a negative term, saying it's kind of this cold, lifeless, void of relationship with God uh, religion. I'll show you a couple ways that it focuses on self. Religion is an attempt to maintain position. There's a motivation there that is not God, it is self. This group, they were focused on maintaining their positions of power and their motivation for doing away with Jesus was fear. What if he takes everything that we hold dear? Rather than the great motivator of the gospel of grace, the grace of God, Empty religion is about maintaining control, whereas the Christian surrenders the control of their lives to Jesus. We sing the song, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to you. It's a surrender of the life to the will of God in our lives, not the cold, dead religious. No, they won't let, release, relinquish any control. The control is theirs, and they will not let it go. So where empty religion is self-focused, self-centered, focused on one's own agenda and status... 
Christianity is diametrically opposed to that. It's focused on Jesus and his agenda and his status. The religious' focus on, st- uh, on self carries on to evaluating spiritual realities by how they will affect you. I mean, that's the great motivator of this religious group. Okay, how will the spiritual realities of Jesus, what he's preaching and the sway he is having, the miracles he's performing, the evidence of him being who he says he is, what kind of effect will that have on me and my life? What's that going to do to my comfort? What's that going to do to my convenience? I mean, this is not just uh, a scenario that for them. This is a scenario for us that, that we need to hear that truly affects us. It's so easy for us to go there, to be worried about loss of status or influence or income. And those made motivators cause them to disobey God. It's easy for us to go there too and not base our decisions on the clear imperatives of the Bible, but on how they'll affect our comfort and convenience. So when Jesus comes along and says something crazy, like take up your cross and follow me, we say, well, that sounds wildly uncomfortable and inconvenient. Sounds like that might cost me. Is there a way I can kind of be in the group, but not actually take up my cross? Jesus goes on to say things like, forgive as you've been forgiven. And we say, wow, you don't know what they've done to me. I need to hold it over them for a while still. I can't forgive yet. Forgive as you've been forgiven, Jesus implores. Ah, love your neighbor as yourself. My neighbor? My, they're difficult, my neighbor. Not my neighbors, but, you know, generically. My neighbor? <laughs> right? That's, That's going to be hard work to love them. I don't, that sounds wildly inconvenient and costly. See, it's so easy to evaluate spiritual realities by how they will affect you. This is what led Jesus to the cross from the religious. They put Jesus there because he didn't want, they didn't want him to mess with what they had going and they were willing to ignore who he was. I find it really hard to preach to the preached to, you know? I mean, some of you have listened to preachers longer than I've been alive, been to church longer than I've been alive. You've heard sermons on practically every text and every issue. And here I am, going to try and preach to you this morning. Yeah, I find it hard to preach to the preach, those who have heard it over and over again. And I also find the tricky balance of trying to make the cold, dead religious uncomfortable and trying to not... not, not Uh, cause ill effects to those who should have an assurance of salvation, who are growing in faith, who genuinely love Jesus. I'm not trying to make you question your faith, but I am trying also to combat cold, dead religion and say, I know it lives here too. It's not okay. It's not what we were called to. It's not how we are to live I know we have heard the implorings of Christ through word and through the spirit, and yet many of us simply remain hard-hearted to Jesus. There are kind of these like parallel streams that run, right? Like there's like the surrender of life to Christ, and then there's all the things, what I would call the moral imperatives or the commands of Jesus. He calls us to live a particular way. And so 
when these parallel streams are running, it's in the power of Jesus. It's in, it's in the, the, the spirit of God working through us. It's him softening our hearts and teaching us his ways and he's growing us. And so all of these things in this parallel stream of, uh, that, that, of faith, of becoming a part of the church family, of giving generously, of uh, living missionally, like these things all come, right? The growing in selflessness that comes with the walking with Jesus. And yet many forsake the walking with Jesus and say, right, this is how it looks, right? I need to do this. I need to say that. I need to check these boxes. And it's just so crippling. And, and really what it comes down to is it's, it's a self-focus that has never let Jesus be in the driver's seat of our lives. And that, that just has to stop. The heart and heart, it really all I'm saying right now, all I'm trying to get across is the question, like, do you know Jesus? Like, do you know him? We're not trying to breed cold, dead religion here. We want you to encounter Christ and for him to mold and shape and transform your life. That's what we long for. And those who know Jesus and follow Jesus focus first on him, second on others, and then third or lastly on self. Whereas the cold, dead religious fixate on self and try and maneuver and manipulate everything else to make their appearance good and just and merit them favor with God. It just doesn't work that way. Now look, the Christian doesn't do these things perfectly. Jesus first, others second, self last. We have a cupboard above our fridge at home where we keep the really good food. And by good food, I mean the really bad for you food. And uh, I found this bag the other day of really what I would consider the greatest culinary uh, invention of all time. It was Twizzlers dipped in chocolate. I, I, Twizzler, like if I go to the movies or something, I buy the pack of Twizzlers and I don't stop and I feel sick halfway through the movie because like I just love them so much that they're just all gone. And then for somebody to have the brilliance of dipping Twizzlers in chocolate. And I said to Emily, like, where did this come from? Where did this, where did this miraculous invention like appear from? And she said, oh, my dad bought it for the boys. I was like, oh. I'd already eaten half the bag when, before I had asked her that question. And they were so good that I was like, why don't I just finish the bag and they'll never know that they ever existed. And that's what I did. And so, <laughs> that's, this is between us, okay? The, the boys will be heartbroken if they catch a sniff of this. So, I'm trusting you. All of that to say, listen, the Christian life is not a perfect selflessness. <laughs> But it is a striving selfless that says, Jesus, I love you. Take control of my life. I want you to rule and reign in me. My, my heart is soft towards you. Would you grow me? I know I'm a sinner, and that's why I rely on you. That's why I cling to you. That's why I turn to you. Jesus, I love you. And he, he, he shapes us. And he, he, he takes our focus from a self-focus to a focus on Christ and his ways over everything. It, it makes us selfless with others very slowly, but he does. And then right, he, we start to think of ourselves last. That's the work of Jesus in our lives. But we have to start with Jesus. No, no faking about around all this stuff about pretending to do the right stuff as if it'll merit us a thing. We need to trust in Jesus. So do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Maybe you've been here a thousand times. Do you know Jesus? You can. You really can. You can take your eyes off the superfluous doing, 
for just a moment. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Start to talk to Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Love Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. And the rest will, the rest will come. Don't worry about the rest right now. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Jesus saves you, and then in the context of relationship with him, surrender to him in his ways. He molds and shapes you into his image, joyfully in the context of relationship with him. Listen, if there is a tenderness in your heart this morning, if there is an openness in your mind, if there is a, what would be the word? If there's just a a prompting in your spirit this morning towards Jesus, I, I I implore you, embrace him. I don't, know, I don't know how many times in your life you're truly going to have the opportunity to be like, okay, now. So if there's an openness in your heart, turn to Jesus, surrender to Jesus, love on Jesus. I say that to the people who, like, maybe it's your first time in church, you don't come to church often. I implore you, if there's an openness to Jesus, turn to Jesus, start talking to Jesus, give your life to Jesus. If you've been here a thousand times, do it. A couple years ago now, a couple years ago now, there was a, a young man named Jeff sitting in this sanctuary, and he grew up in church. He grew up with a very um, faithful church family, loved Jesus. Parents wanted to see him come to Christ. His dad got another godly man on his son's case, on Jeff's case, like just trying to lead him to Christ. And he had heard it all a thousand times. And then one Sunday morning here a couple years ago, he heard the gospel preached, and he gave his life to Jesus. What? Like, I don't get how all of that works, but here's what I know. If there's a prompting in your heart and saying, yeah, I, I need Jesus. I don't actually know Jesus. I'm not actually walking with Jesus. Come to Jesus, like Jeff did in this room a couple years ago. He'd heard it all before, but he didn't really know him. I encourage you to do that. We need to move on. In verse 14 of John 18, it says, It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas, right, the high priest, John, is hearkening our thoughts back to John chapter 11, where Caiaphas says this statement. Caiaphas is thinking and telling the others it would be expedient that Jesus die for the masses. It's an interesting statement. He means one thing, God means another. We'll get into that. But this word expedient, one definition is a means of attaining an end, especially one that is convenient, but possibly improper or immoral. That's what Caiaphas is up to. Look at it in John chapter 11, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He's like, right, it's a good start. (laughs) He's telling this group, you don't get it. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this, now John informs us, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. I want to tell you three glorious things that this text, this prophecy of Caiaphas, uh, tells us. Here's the first. The death of Jesus was a loving event God planned for your good. 
Caiaphas again said in verse 50, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John, the gospel writer, informs us that he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. So this is what that means. At one level, these are Caiaphas's words with his meaning. But on another level, these are God's words with his meaning. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way, so he said what he said. God wanted Jesus to die, yes, also, but he also wanted him to rise and to rule and to reign forever. Caiaphas had a plan, and so he said what he said, but God also had a plan in all of that, and so he said what he said. Can you imagine this? This is what, this is what we hear here. God said this, it's better that Jesus die. In other words, it is better than any other plan. God's plan for his son to die on the cross was the best plan. When Emily and I went on our first date, I took her to a nice restaurant, and then I went to pay for that meal, and my debit card was declined. Uh, Very romantic. Shocking we had a second date. (laughs) Thankfully, her debit card worked, so... um, We didn't have to do dishes or anything like that that night. And it's like, oh, that wasn't the greatest. But oh, it worked out. Everything worked out. That's not what's happening here. Sometimes we read like, okay, here's the plans of these people. This is what they're conspiring over here. And then God comes along and he's like, ooh, I'll try and work this out somehow. It's totally different than that. What's going on here is the death of Jesus was a loving event God planned for your good. What you need to hear here is that God lovingly sent Jesus to die. It was his plan. Caiaphas had his own, and God overarchingly used that. It's the same thing with Joseph, right? Joseph had these brothers who hated him, and they conspired to sell their brother into slavery. Their hardness of their hearts did that to Joseph, and yet God overarchingly was working Joseph into slavery to raise him up in a land that he was sent to in slavery in Egypt to do mighty things. What they meant for evil, God meant it for good. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. He didn't just figure out a way in the midst of bad things. God had this overarching plan of love for you. That's the way God works in your life. God didn't just work a bad set of circumstances out for good. The death of Jesus was a loving event planned by God for your good. Second, God took the life of his son so that he wouldn't have to take yours. This is really the language of substitution. Caiaphas, the high priest, is prophesying. But here's what he's saying in, in his mind. Caiaphas is saying, we'll kill Jesus so the Romans don't kill us. Well, God is ultimately saying, I'll kill him so I don't have to kill you. Now, we typically, right, associate killing with sinning, right? It's kind of where we go. So is God wrong? Is God sinful? Is he doing something wrong? No, the, the, the ways and motives of God are pure and righteous in this circumstance. He's lovingly sending Jesus to the cross, and Jesus is willingly going there for us. But God, nevertheless, is sending Jesus to the cross, is killing his son so that we wouldn't have to be killed. It says this much in Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, that's Jesus, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He put our sins on Jesus' back and hung him on a cross. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Could not be more clear. God loves you so much that he let one die in your place. This is a story all throughout the Bible, and it culminates in the cross. Like Abraham, for example. Abraham and Sarah awaited a descendant, a descendant that would be made into a great nation. And eventually, like eventually, after many, many years, they have a son named Isaac. And then God says, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Abraham, trusting God, faith in God, takes his son, goes up a mountain. He's going to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Isaac looks around and he's like, we've got all the wood, we've got the kindling, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham in faith says, God will provide a sacrifice. And he did. In the form of his son. Sure, a ram in a thicket in that moment, but ultimately in his son. See, where Abraham's firstborn son is spared, God the Father's firstborn son is not because he took the life of his son so that he wouldn't have to take yours. When Isra- the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt and God was sending plagues and the, the heart of Pharaoh's heart was hardened and they were mistreating the Israelites, God said, I'm going to take the life of all firstborn sons. But if you would sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts, I will pass over that particular house wherever blood was shed and uh, spread on these doorposts. I will spare the life of the firstborn son. And the Spirit of God goes through and all the firstborn son's lives are spared where there was bloodshed. See, that has always been the case. Sin is so serious that blood has always had to be shed for it. I don't know if you take your sin that seriously, but that's how serious God takes our sin. Blood has always had to be shed for sin. But God in his grace decisively decided to let Jesus take that for Christ's blood to be poured out so that yours wouldn't have to be. Hebrews 9 verse 11 tells us, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God, for a time, would purify through the blood of goats and bulls, and lambs, but ultimately a once-for-all sacrifice came in the finished work of Jesus Christ where his blood was spilt so ours would not have to be ultimate cleansing through Jesus. What we see happening in this text is that Jesus was slapped so we could be embraced. I mean, isn't it so ironic that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm just asking for a fair trial And he's slapped in the face with words, essentially, how dare you talk to the high priest that way? 
Meanwhile, the greater high priest is taking the slap. In total purity, total righteousness, Jesus was slapped so we could be embraced. Jesus was stricken by God so we could be forgiven. Jesus was killed so we could live. Lastly, missionally, the death of Jesus purchased one blood-bought people from all nations. Back to uh, chapter 11, verses 51 and 52. He, that's Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus says the same thing in John 10. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's, that's the nation of Israel. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd, many nations, but they will come and be one flock, one people, one nation. This is precisely What John sees in a vision in Revelation 5 where it reads, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In other words... The substitutionary death of Jesus makes those who believe in him from all nations one people. Nothing unites people like Jesus. There are other sheep not of this fold, he is saying, of the nation of Israel. There are others, right? There are those not only here who need salvation, but beyond that need salvation. And I have come, Jesus says, my blood is being poured, Jesus is saying, so that I can have this one blood-bought people, a people redeemed by God, a people saved by grace. Nothing unites people like Jesus. Earlier this week, I was at the Lake Iraq campus, which will we'll come along when it comes along, if you're wondering when that'll happen. Um, we're, we're praying a lot. Um, we were given a building uh, by the MB Conference of a, a, a little church that was called North Fraser Church uh, between Agassiz and Mission in the Daroche area called Lake Iraq. We were given this little building and a remnant of faithful people who just wanted, it to, wanted to see it be a light and reach people in that area. And God really brought us as a church to come alongside and we're... Amazing renovations have been happening to this building through uh, the work of many people in our church, just giving labor, giving time, using their abilities, and the the little chapel looks stunning. And a few of us were praying in it earlier this week, just seeking God, His will. And nearly 50% of that area is indigenous. And we know that God has called us to be a a community church there, a church for that community. And we take that very seriously. And we don't want to be disingenuous about being a church for the whole community. So we're longing, we're, we're asking God, how do we be a church for the whole community, diversity and all? And I was praying, and uh, an indigenous brother, um, friend of mine, was there, and he was just on his face in prayer as we stood in this little building. I'm Mennonite, so I stood. He lay. Uh, uh, (laughs) And uh, we were praying, and I was just moved to tears because 
He was praying Revelation 5 in this community of Lake Iraq. The whole community needs Jesus. There's no other church going. Like thousands of people. We have the privilege of, of, of stepping into that community and sharing the gospel there. And we want it to be for all people. And he's on his face, my indigenous brother, praying out to God saying, may all the tribes, all the tongues, all the nations gather here around your gospel. And I'm just like, yes, Lord. Would you do that work among us? Look, the gospel just explodes our categories for divisions. The light of the gospel is meant to shine through and just draw people. And that's the heart of Jesus here. We are called to be a blood-bought people. His blood shed for the nations, for all of those who will believe from every place on the planet. So as we get rid of cold, dead religion and walk in faith to a relational God who calls us into relationship with Jesus Christ and we see all that he's done for us and shedding his blood instead of our blood being shed, he's done all of that for us and we start to see that he wants to reach people with this gospel across the nations. We just start to give ourselves to that work and ask God to do it. We join people like the Apostle Paul who went into a place that had never heard the gospel before called Corinth. We read about it in Acts chapter 18 and Jesus speaks to Paul and you know what he says? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus says to Paul, Go into Corinth and proclaim the gospel with confidence because in every tribe, every nation, every people, I am calling one to myself in Jesus Christ. So go proclaim him because waiting in Corinth are a number of believers. Go to Lake Iraq with confidence. Arrive there and love people like Jesus and proclaim Jesus because I have people in Lake Iraq who are going to become a part of my people, diverse as we may be, in our community here. And I know God is sending from among us more missionaries to the nations from out of central to go to hard to reach places, places that have not heard the gospel, who do not know Jesus, who need the light of the gospel to shine. Jesus is saying, go preach there because I have people from those nations that I am drawing to myself. Oh, Jesus went into that kangaroo court, right? Because he wanted to die for you so you could live. And he wanted you to be so in awe of all that he accomplished that you'd take it anywhere. And that's what we long to do, that he would use us, that he would grow us, that he would make us into a people for his own possession. Let's pray to that end. I'm, I'll pray. I'll call the band forward. We're going to have a prayer team in the room. We'd love to pray with you. Let's close. Jesus, oh, thank you. Thank you for your saving work on the cross and the offer of it to all, to anyone who would believe. And Lord, I know that we are not... Um, That cold, dead religion isn't beyond us. That's actually where our heart tends to go. We think we can earn it ourselves. 
and you call us to embrace Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would take hard hearts this morning and soften them to you. And if that's going on right now, I pray that people would turn to you in faith. I pray we'd have more Jeffs in the room. And God, I pray that you would use this glorious gospel that you have proclaimed to us that is changing us, transforming our lives, and make us a missional people in the eastern Fraser Valley and beyond for your glory and the good of our community. In Jesus' name, amen.